Hey dad, how are you? It's me, just your daughter, you don't know. Ring me back when you can. I just called to say hello. Hi, this is Don Anderson, and I'm the host of Missing Pieces. This is season two, episode four. Not quite a synonym kid. Don't forget to please rate, follow, and review this podcast. It really helps a lot, and it means quite a bit to me. I think for most MPEs, we separate our lives into two distinct time periods. Before we found out we were an MPE, and after. Well, in my before, I had been slowly working on a documentary called The Synanon Kids. It was my passion project, so I worked on it when I could. It was like five years in the making. And by the way, Synanon is spelled S-Y-N-A-N-O-N, in case you want to Google it. But watch out for what you read on Wikipedia. It's a pretty one-sided view. If you're interested in reading stories from people who live there, go to Synanon.com, and you'll see pictures and essays and articles from people who actually live there. Synanon was the first drug rehab for heroin addicts, junkies. It started in 1958 in Venice, California. It morphed into a lot of things over the years rehab, commune, then ultimately a cult. But it was huge, and at one time it was hugely popular, and Hollywood loved them. The federal government loved them. A senator said on the Senate floor back in the 60s, his name was Senator Dodd, I forgot what state he's from, he said that he called Synanon the miracle on the beach. And then what happened is the addicts who lived there started bringing their kids in to live with them in this rehab. Then it became a commune, and the idealist squares who moved in also brought their kids in with them. It helped a lot of people, changed lives. But then it hurt a lot of people, too, especially the kids, in my opinion. Not all former kids feel that way, but a lot of them do. And in some cases, the kids, no matter how bad it was in Synanon, they knew growing up with addict parents outside of Synanon would have been worse. How do you reconcile that? I interviewed over 40 kids who grew up or at least lived partly in Synanon as a kid. And I was obsessed. I thought about Synanon every day. I read books about it. I went to UCLA several times to watch old movies and TV shows that featured Synanon. I was always on the hunt for archive materials. I started buying Synanon collector stuff on eBay. <laughs> I mean, I was all Synanon all the time. But then on September 19th, 2021, I found out I was an MPE. And that changed my world. After that, I thought about being an MPE every day. I read everything I could find about MPEs. I listened to other podcasts. I wanted to talk to my new sisters I'd found all the time. And, you know, some time had passed and I realized I hadn't thought about Synanon for over three months. I had changed my obsession from Synanon to MPEs. Then I decided to do this podcast, and I haven't looked back, nor have I had time to work on this documentary. But I knew, I intuitively knew that someday those two obsessions would meet. I knew I could find a story about someone in Synanon who was also an MPE. Well, there are a couple, actually. Um, and today's not quite a Synanon kid, but we'll get to that. Although she wasn't in Synanon, her father was, and her father was kind of a big deal in Synanon. So there's a new podcast that came out recently called The Sunshine Place, and it's about Synanon. And it's a great podcast. You can find it anywhere you find your other podcast, The Sunshine Place. 
And my guest today was the host of that podcast, and her name is Sari Crawford. Here's her story. Yeah, so my name is Sari Crawford. I'm originally from Reno, Nevada. I'm currently living in Texas. I was born in 1993. When somebody asks you what was synonym, what do you say? Well, you want to say the short answer to kind of get out of it sometimes. Um, I, I usually say it's a community and leave it at that. Um, but you could say it was a cult at times, and you could say that it was um, a commune at times, and you could say it was a rehab community at one time. Um, so all of those would be true, but definitely in shorthand, I would, I would just tell people it's a community. <laughs> And your dad was one of the early guys, right? Yes, he was one of the original 12. Um, they kind of started out in uh, in apartments, in Chuck's apartments, and branched out from there. So Bill Crawford was a big wig in um, Synodon. Like Sari said, you know, he was one of the original folks, the OG, so to speak. But, you know, he was um, well-liked in Synodon, from what I know. He... Um, but, you know, if you Google him, Bill Crawford or William Crawford, you can find old pictures of him. There were, he was in Time Magazine or Life Magazine, one of those, um, in, in an article they did about Senanon. And he's playing, like, he was a um, jazz musician. So he was a, I think before he came into Senanon, he played some horn. But in, in, in the Senanon band, he was like the drummer. And there's this cool shot of him, just this cool jazz drummer. Um, you know, I think he would have been called a cool cat back in the day. I found this old recording of him. It was on this old radio show called Main Currents with Lee Graham. It aired on WNYC. This is from November 23rd, 1965. And the name of the episode was Narcotics and the Family. This is a bit from that show with Bill Crawford talking about Synanon. Now, Mr. Crawford, uh, I think that Synanon has had phenomenal success in um, helping people clean themselves or get rid of the habit of drugs. Um, what would you like to add? Or would you like to just uh, restate what Synanon does? Well, I, th- I think I have to disagree with Mr. Bilk on hospitalization versus, uh, let's say, private enterprise, because Synanon is certainly a private enterprise with uh, none of the conventional techniques. We don't have doctors, psychiatrists, social workers, uh, clergymen, none of the conventional and tra- traditional techniques of working with addicts has seemed to produce any significant results to date. Uh, Lexington, Fort Worth, the government health service hospitals have a dismal rate of failure, uh, something like 90 to 95 percent recidivism. Synanon has been successful, I think, primarily because it's taken another stand away from and in another direction from traditional uh, approaches to this problem. We're a private enterprise. We're addicts doing it ourselves under some very skillful and and, uh, uh, genius-like innovations in, in, uh, in coping with the problem attendant upon the addict personality, the character disorder. Well, Mr. Crawford, uh, I think that Synanon certainly should be congratulated for what it's done. It's uh, quite original and, and I suppose unique and comparable to Alcoholics Anonymous, where physicians often send their patients when they've given up on everything else. 
Well, let's talk about this, Sari. Let's talk about what it was like growing up and where you lived and did you live with both parents, et cetera, et cetera. So I grew up in um, Lemon Valley, which is a little bit north of Reno, Nevada. I was born there in Sparks, Nevada. Um, I was raised with both par- both parents in the house. Um, now, my mom and dad did their relationship kind of fell apart when I was very little, maybe two or three. Um, so they did sleep in separate rooms and things like that. But, you know, my father was, um, you know, in his seventies by then and, um, they were not going to separate. Um, I had a, a, a relatively normal childhood, I'd say. Um, but you know, I was sick as a kid. So, you know, I was homeschooled and things like that. Um, but my parents did things differently. I think influenced by Synanon, um, you know, they had uh, different beliefs about um, uh, allowing kids to do kind of free range, whatever they wanted, um, which could be very liberating and um, intellectual, but sometimes, um, you know, was out of control. I think Um, like, I remember my dad, my dad letting me watch Green Mile when I was about three or four and, you know, I'd have nightmares and things like that. And my sisters were like, yeah, you know, (laughs) we watched movies like that when we were very young too. So, um, you know, I see the philosophy both ways. Um, I I think, I think on one hand, yeah, those bad things happen. But on the other hand, um, I did grow up very critical thinking and free and explorative. Um, and that was a result of my parents sort of uh, letting me run the roost, so to speak. <laughs> and when you say um, sisters, are you talking about the two that I know of that grew up in Senegal? Yeah. So when you were growing up, you were the only child in the house. Yes, there's a significant age difference between me and my siblings. So I was raised kind of as an only child. You said something that stood out to your um, dad, Bill, was 70 when you were a kid? Uh, He was 65 when I was born. So by the time I had, you know, really good memories, he was, you know, into his 70s. Um, And then he passed away at 75. Your mom was also in Senegal? Yes. Um, my dad was there just shy of 20 years. Uh, he was having his 20th anniversary when he left. Uh, and then my mom was there, she believes, about maybe eight years. Um, yeah. Came in, came in when she was a teen, 19, and left when she was about 28, so maybe nine years. And was she a dope fiend? She was not. She was a square. She came because she had a difficult childhood um, and wanted to do something different, uh, explore her world a little bit and find a community to call her own and to call her family. And Synanon was very welcoming and, and she fit right in. Great. So there, there were two types of people. Well, there were more than two types of people, but adult wise, there was people that were addicts at first and i think they later changed that to character disorders and then um squares which are what i would call normie in my parlance so is anything off limits um (laughs) not at this time i i guess i suppose i'll i'll stop you if i don't have an answer for something but um i'm pretty much as open as you get and do you want to talk about how your dad fared after synodon sure um well, uh, you know, he was clean and sober for many, many years. Um, 
I do know that uh, after he left Synodon. Um, and then and I, I remember, you know, when Chuck started drinking again, um, you know, my mom told me this story, but uh, when Chuck started drinking again um, and Synodon started drinking again, um, you know, my dad, even after he left, still, you know, kept up with Synanon and what they were doing. And, you know, I think kind of longed for the golden days, you know, to bring those back in some way. I think he always hoped that uh, it would revert back to its golden days and, um, you know, Chuck would clean up his act and, um, you know, we'd, they'd fix the, the crazy rules and things like that um, and violence. But anyway, so he kept tabs on that. And when they started, when Chuck started drinking again and um, let people in Synanon drink again, um, my dad was like, well, you know, now we can have one glass of wine at dinner and it would start from there. And then they started drinking more. And of course, my dad's first drug of choice when he was a teenager was alcohol. And from there, he went to heroin. So that was his sort of original love. Um, so he did start drinking again. Um, really not heavily until after I was born, but you know, he was under a lot of stress at that point. Um, and it gradually picked up pace. And by the time he died, he was, um, you know, absolutely an alcoholic again. Um, for sure, uh, full blown alcoholic. He was, you know, falling downstairs, busting his head open, um, you know, getting DUIs. Um, it was very difficult. Um, but you know, he stayed, he was able to stay clean for a very long time. Um, and more than a lot of rehabs have to say for their record. So it's hard to say, um, there were definitely people that reverted back to drugs and alcohol and died because of it. Um, but you know, then there were cases like people, uh, John Stallone and Hugh Kenny that were, you know, really bad addicts that, you know, never, uh, became addicts again. Um, so it's hard to say. I don't have the numbers, but um, it's hard to say how effective Synanon was in the long term. But I do know that uh, it, it was effective enough to have uh, at least, you know, an impact on, on many of these residents for decades to come. Um, as far as heroin, I'm not sure if my dad ever went back to heroin, but, you know, it's it's hard to say. Um, towards the end of his life, but um, definitely drinking and he would definitely smoke, you know, two to three packs a day. <laughs> I can tell you that. It's interesting. And, you know, I could talk all day about Sanon, um and the, um, seriously, I can go down the rabbit hole anytime, anyone, <laughs> anywhere wants to talk about it. <laughs> but let's get back to, you. you told me a story about how you found out your dad wasn't your dad. So, um, you know, my, my dad had had the mandatory vasectomy when he was in Synanon. And by the time they were out and they were trying to have kids, he was significantly older. Um, like I said, when I was born, he was 65. So they decided to do IVF. I didn't really know growing up. They did tell me about the IVF process growing up, but it was never clear, you know, that we were genetically different. But as I grew older, I could, you know, I, I looked nothing like my sisters. I looked nothing like my parents. Um, and at the time of IVF in, you know, 1993 or, you know, 1992 when I was conceived, um, everything was very hush-hush. And they would tell the parents at the clinic that um, I was conceived at 
that, um, you know, don't don't ever tell the kid. They don't need to know. We're going to match you with people that look like you so there won't be any questions. Um, but I never looked like my parents. Um, so I started having questions. And then my father passed away when I was about 11. Um, and then, you know, that was a very hard time. Um, and my mom was very depressed and she missed him a lot. And I was becoming a preteen and we didn't always get along. Um, so I remember, I remember coming home from a choir practice actually. And I was in the car with my mom and we had a long drive home. And I don't remember what I was upset about, but, uh, you know, we were, we were having an argument or a squabble or something. And she was really upset and she said something along the lines of, you know, well, I don't know why you're so upset about your father dying, you know, because he wasn't even genetically your father. And I'm sure she said that to hurt me and then she felt bad later. Um, But that's sort of how it came out in the heat of the moment. So being 11, um, that was really hard to take. Um, because I felt like my identity had changed a little bit, especially after losing my father and, you know, not getting along with my mother so well. Um, and then, so, so that night I was, I went through a lot just thinking about that. And then the next day, you know, I called my sister and, um, I was like, did you know, you know, were you aware? And she was like, yes. And so I was asking her questions about what she knew and all this. And she said something, again, I can't remember exactly what it was, but she said something along the lines of, um, you know, but, but because she knew my mom and I were having issues. She said, but isn't it, you know, in some way, it's upsetting, but isn't it some way a relief to know that, you know, you're not related to Sylvia either. Sylvia's my mom. And then I was really through the ringer because she had not said that in the fight, of course. She had only said that it wasn't related to my dad. So then I had a new can of worms to open. So then I went through that process um, and I sort of decided that I just I really wanted to find my biological parents, even though it wasn't an adoption scenario. I felt that I really needed those answers. So that's how I got told and that's how I started on that journey. That day you found out about you know, the day after your mom, you found out both your parents weren't genetically your parents. Did you know what that meant at the time, or did you have to learn about it? I had to learn a lot about IVF and that whole process. I did have a a little bit of an understanding because my parents had talked about it at one point um, about how I was conceived. They didn't mention the um, donated egg and sperm, but, you know, they mentioned how it occurred. The way it works with donor egg and donor sperm my mom had had a series of miscarriages through the IVF process. Um, so uh, each time they use new embryos. And so she had, she'd already kind of gone through it and given up a little bit, but she decided to try again. Um, and they had gone through several rounds of IVF. But basically what happens is they take the donated egg and the donated sperm. And in a laboratory, they fertilize the egg with the sperm. And then from there, they wait for it to multiply um, and so that they can, they actually um, stimulate it to multiply. Um, and they use 
sometimes multiple eggs, multiple sperm, um, so that they get several embryos. And that's why IVF has a um, higher rate of twins and triplets, uh, because they want multiple embryos to implant so that the likelihood that at least one embryo will um, take to the uterus. So then what they do is they take the completely um, formed um, embryo. Now it's, you know, just a speck, uh, but it is fertilized and formed. Um, and then they implant it directly into the uterus and with, um, fertility injections and things like that, that prevent your body from rejecting it. Uh, the hope is that at least one will, um, implant itself into the uterus and become a viable baby. Uh, so then my mom can carry me the rest of the term. Um, so that's that's what happens when you have um, IVF in that scenario. So I had a little bit of knowledge of the process. I mean, I knew my mom had given birth to me. Um, in my eyes, of course, my mom and dad were my mom and dad and still are. But just like a child adopted at birth, um, you know, everybody goes through their own journey. Some kids are well adjusted. They don't want to know. They're just not interested. Their parents are their parents. And some kids, you know, um, love their parents and are perfectly fine. And they just they just want to know answers. And I believe both uh, both journeys are okay to go on. Um, I think for me, it's it's answered a lot of questions. And um, um, I glad I'm glad I sought out the answers. Yeah. I mean, me too. I, I, I know I've said this before other places, but finding out that my dad wasn't my dad ex really explained my whole childhood like nothing else ever had. Mm -hmm. um, I want to back up and ask one question, a follow-up that you said earlier. You were talking about you didn't look like anybody in your family, and then you said, so I questioned it. Like, did you question it out loud that you thought um, – something was up or is that in just in your head internally? I think I did a couple of times now, you know, I found out when I was 11, so I was still not, you know, I was still thinking like a kid, not an adult. So I didn't, I wasn't asking too many questions at that point. Uh, but I remember here and there, I would ask some questions like, you know, because I'm, I'm tall and I'm, um, you know, I'm, I'm built bigger. Uh, my sisters and my dad are very petite. My sisters are you know, 90 pounds soaking wet and I'm, I'm very tall. Um, you know, <laughs> I'm kind of built like a tank a little bit. <laughs> so that was a question there. Also, my sisters have very curly, dark hair. So did my dad and I have bright blonde, straight hair. Um, and, uh, I remember asking my mom one time, you know, I must have been six or seven, not very old, you know, why sh she and dad had any belly buttons and I had an Audi, you know, and she would kind of explain, I think, I think her explanation, maybe it's true, maybe it's not, I don't, you know, I don't know, it sounds a little far-fetched, but her explanation was that her mom didn't want her to have an Audi, she thought it didn't look pretty, so her mom would tape her Audi so that it would become an innie. Um, maybe that's true. I've never, you know, I've never heard of that working, but, um, you know, things like that she would, she would do to kind of explain it away. And then I wouldn't ask too many more questions. Um, but they were there, you know, here and there. And, um, so, well, let's get back to the, um, you said when you found out you had the desire to find your, um, genetic parents 
by our parents? Yes. Yes. I pretty much knew immediately that's what I wanted to do. Um, and this was, you know, early, uh, early 2000s, around 2000. So 2004. So internet was, was out there and you could Google stuff, but you know, we didn't have the genetic databases and things like that now. Um, so I didn't know where to start, but I just started Googling and Googling the clinic and, you know, it was just a long road. And then, so how did you find them or, or do you want to talk about that process? Sure. So it it was, it almost became an obsession. It really did become an obsession. Um, Maybe partly to, to to answer those questions, maybe partly just because, you know, I had been searching for years and it was becoming like, uh, you know, <laughs> even if I don't find out any questions, at least I found them, you know, it'd be an accomplishment for me. Um, so I'm not sure, but it did become an obsession. Um, uh, internet was not as advanced, like I said, when I started this process. Um, the clinic was very clandestine, almost too much so. Um, you know, now they have genetic testing on donors. They keep their names, um, some kind of record, um, you know what I mean, to track them. They don't use, you know, too many sperm samples over, you know, too, too much time to prevent, you know, too many, you know, kids out there from the same donor. Um, stuff like that is what they do now. Um, Back then, uh, they didn't even really keep records on these people. Uh, for, for my sperm donor, my dad, um, that was hard because they kept, they didn't keep a name. They didn't test his genetics. They didn't keep a date of birth. They just had donor number blank, blank, blank. And that was it. That's all they knew about him. And that's all I knew about him. So that wasn't really helpful. In terms of my, um, uh, donor egg side. So my, let's call her my mom, um, just for simplicity. Um, for my mom's side, they, all they had was some form that she had filled, filled out when she, um, had decided to donate. And, um, after many years of bugging the clinic, they wouldn't send it to me. They wouldn't send me any information. Um, you know, uh, they they were really hush hush about it, but they also told you know, like the sperm donor that it would be anonymous. Um, so I do understand that. But anyway, um, so with her records, uh, she, all she had was that form she filled out. Finally, I was having a lot of medical problems, and I said, "Look, you know, this is I need to know my medical history. I need to have those forms." So they this clinic did finally release those forms. When when did they release the forms? So this, finally, this this push was when I was 18. So when I was 18 and I was a uh, freshman year of college, that's when this push happened, uh, when I finally got them to release this. But I think I finally got the paperwork after going back and forth with them when I was 19 in my sophomore year. So so I'm 19 years old. I'm in my sophomore year. I'm finally getting somewhere with the clinic. They send me these forms and everything's redacted, um, but there's not much information on it. It's like, you know, I think her job that she had, you know, and she must have been in her early 20s when she donated. So the job she had, um, which was like a dancer and, um, you know, hobbies she liked, her height and weight, you know, stuff like that. It just wasn't a whole lot of helpful information and everything else was redacted. So, I, you know, I figured Internet's advanced now, you know, maybe I'll just type in all these things. So I just 
foot-like dancer, uh, her approximate age. I don't think there was even a date of birth on there. Um, but her approximate age, dancer, all her hobbies, you know, spin of the dice, right? Spin of the spin of the wheel. <laughs> and uh, all of a sudden, this lady's LinkedIn popped up. You know, I put in a few different um, a few different um, uh, variations of the words, right? And her LinkedIn popped up. And I kind of looked at her. She kind of looked like me, but it's hard to tell. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I wait scroll. A minute, wait a minute. Back up. Yeah. <laughs> so w- what did you put in? What were you, did you use for the search? Um, former dancer, um, uh, LA in the early or LA area in the early twenties. Um, and then her hobbies, um, you know, good with kids. I, I can't remember her hobbies or it had her like favorite flower or something. Um, but just variations of these just key things that were in this, this profile that she filled out and this lady's LinkedIn popped up. So I kind of go down it and, um, you know, she kind of looks like me, hard to tell. But um, when I scroll down it, I can see, you know, okay, she was in the L.A. area around the right time. All right. Um, And she was a dancer. That was her job. Okay, so that matches. Um, You know, uh, now she's a minister. So I've, you know, who knows? I had no idea. But okay, you know, could be possible. Um, and then, and then it was like something in her bio, um, you know, it mentioned the favorite flower or whatever it was she had in her hobbies, like, you know, good with kids or likes dogs or something. Um, anyway, it just all seemed to match up. So I was like, well, this is the closest that I'm going to get that everything seems to match up. Might as well just send her a message. So I send this woman uh, over LinkedIn this crazy message. And I was like, you know, this probably totally out of the blue. Um, but did you donate an egg around, you know, this time, early 90s to this clinic? Um, if not, you know, have a great life. <laughs> but <laughs> I'm just curious sort of thing. And it took her a- another week or so. So I figured she just saw it and thought I was crazy and moved on. Um, but finally she responded and she was like, oh my God, I've been waiting to hear from you. You know, yes, I, I think we're a match. And so I think we got on the phone or something and talked and she's like, yes, I've been, I've been waiting to hear from you. Um, I gave the clinic my contact info because the clinic had actually told this woman that they would be giving the parents her contact info so that if I ever wanted to know that I could contact her. Now, of course, they never kept that info. They never gave it to my parents. They never, you know, released it to me. So that was probably just something to get her to donate. And they figured nobody would be the wiser. Um, but yeah. And then, and then the final sort of thing was that I said, um, or she said, you know, they, the clinic had sent me a picture of you when you were a baby, and on the back of it was written Sky, and that was the name that I went by when I was a baby. So, I mean, instantly we knew that, you know, you can't make that up. So instantly we knew that that, that was definitely my biological mom. And then later on, you know, through 23andMe and all that, I can match with her siblings and stuff like that. So, um, you know, we know it's her. So anyway, so that was how I found her. <laughs> that is incredible. Like I know, right? I mean, talking about a needle in a haystack, that is, I mean, that is nothing short of a Yeah. 
But I mean, when you're obsessed for that many years, I mean, you'll just try anything. I mean, and it just was like, this is the best lead I have. And, you know, why the hell not? I mean, Google does amazing things, you know, people put all their stuff on Facebook now. So now you can find people. <laughs> wow. That's amazing. And then, um, and so do you guys have a relationship now? We do. I mean, obviously, you know, it's not like mother-daughter. Um, you know, my mom, Sylvia, is my mom. Um, but she's been very open and welcoming and just, you know, if you need a mom figure, I'm here. And, you know, if you don't, that's fine, but I'm here anyway. And it's been the best case scenario. Um, she was at my wedding. I was at her daughter's wedding recently. Um, you know, so we have that kind of relationship, which is um, rare. I'm not, I don't want anybody to get their hopes up, but I'm very happy that I have that. Wow. That is nice. And then. Yeah. But it's also very hard for women to donate eggs, especially in the early nineties. It was like years of shots and you know what I mean? So um, whereas a sperm donor walks in and 20 minutes later, they walk out with a hundred bucks. So I can see that she would be more invested in um, thinking about where her egg went than maybe a sperm donor. Mm. Yeah. I didn't realize it was that difficult for the egg donors. Mm -hmm. And so what about the bio dad? Have you looked for him? Have you found him? Yes. Yes, I have. So he took a lot longer. So, so remember I found my biological mom at 19. Um, with my biological dad, it was, it took longer because I didn't have anything on him. Nothing. Um, so really my best bet was when, um, Ancestry and 23andMe came out. Um, those were my best shots. So I signed up for both, took all the tests, sent them in, you know, and then it was just a waiting game. And these tools weren't even available publicly. Um, even when I found my biological mom, uh, they didn't have like a, a registry like that for genetics. So I really just had to wait until this technology came out, signed up, did that. And like I said, waited. And eventually I matched um, with a woman um, and it said first cousin. We're not quite first cousin. She's my father's, she's my father's aunt. Um, but you know, genetically it's about the same. So I matched with her and, you know, me being crazy again, because, you know, I've been doing this for years. What do I have, what do I have to lose? Right. I knew it was on my paternal side because I could see that and I could see that it was not the right genetics for my maternal side in terms of the breakdown. Um, so I reached out and I was like, hey, I don't want to, you know, intrude. Um, you know what I mean? I don't want to mess up anybody's life. I know this is out of the blue, but, you know, here's here's where I come from. I'm looking for any male that might have been around college age in the L.A. area that might have donated sperm. And here's why. And here's who I am. And. Again, took another week. So, you know, you never know if they just dismiss it. And she comes back and she goes, I know exactly who you're talking about. But of course, let me reach out, you know, and talk with him, you know, because he has a family. And I completely understand that. So I let her reach out and talk to him. And then um, maybe about a month later or something, he reaches, finds me on Facebook and reaches out. I think I gave him my email too or something. Um 
And yeah, uh, he does have a family and it is a little bit of a different relationship. Um, cause he doesn't know, you know, how many kids could be out there, especially in the early nineties when there was no regulations on how often he was, you know, they could use his sample and, um, understandably. So, you know, he, he has his kids that he's, he's raised and, you know, if he treats me one way and a bunch of kids come out of the woodwork, does he have to treat them the same way? So I get all these questions. So it's not the same relationship. I wish it was, uh, you know, maybe a little bit more nurturing, but I do understand, you know, he was just a college kid looking for beer money. And then all of a sudden, you know, he's not, he's not 18 anymore and he's got a family and now he has to think about these things and how much do you, you know, hold him accountable for that, you know? So he thought he was just signing up for something anonymous. Right. Um, yeah. So that's how I found him. And, um, how long ago was that when you found him? I was about 25. Um, so it's about, three years ago now. Um, and, uh, I, re- I recently just spent Christmas with the, um, with the woman that, um, had connected us. So, um, I'm grateful that I know him and I'm grateful for whatever relationship we do have. Oh, wow. So you had Christmas with your great aunt, right? Yeah. And, um, she, she actually is closer in age to my biological father. Um, and that's how she knew him. They they grew up very close. Um, but yeah, so that's how I found him. And um, it's it's a little bit of a different relationship, but but I am so grateful for it because now I know. And um, you know, even though uh, it's not like father daughter, which I didn't expect, uh, it's still a relationship that's an open line, and I can't you know be any more you know grateful for that. And so, you know, I don't think we've talked about this, but, um, you know, you mentioned that you have, at some point on the phone, you mentioned how many surgeries you've had in your life. How many? Um, and a good estimation is about 26 to 28. Um, kind of lost count a little bit, but that's, <laughs> that's in the ballpark. Wow. And, and so, I mean, that just brings up a question of like, if anybody needed their medical history, right? Like, you know, so is it genetic, the reasons you had to have surgery? That's a great question. Um, you know, there's there's no there's no concrete proof that it is genetic. Um, but what I will say is that now I know that on my paternal side, there's a lot of stroke and heart disease. Um, and that, you know, can be a contributing factor. Um, but you know, it's not concrete two plus two equals four. However, on my maternal side, there is Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. She was diagnosed with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, um, after she had donated. Of course, she would never donate if she had known that, but, um, her kids have it. And now she's, uh, she walks with a cane, um, and she's basically almost immobile, um, but at the time, you know, she was just a really flexible dancer. It wasn't as big of a deal. Um, and that can contribute to um, heart defects. It does affect um, the uh, vascular system, and you can have POTS and things like that. Um, but again, it's not necessarily 2 plus 2 equals 4. However, um, you know, we've come a long ways. Now we, you know, 
we, we pre-test donors. Um, we screen them for these kind of things. Um, and at the very least, we have questionnaire for the sperm donor at the very, very least. So um, it, you could say that uh, maybe it was a little unethical of the clinic not to even attempt to do that. But, you know, back then, get, getting genetically tested was a much bigger deal than it is now. But I think, you know, at least keeping a name and a date of birth on a record of some sort, because, you know, God forbid, if I did have a very serious genetic problem that, you know, was very glaringly genetic, um, you know, there'd be no way to for them to even reach out to this donor. Um, and that, you know, is problematic in itself. Like you're grateful that your mom told you now, right? Yes. Um, I'm glad she told me. I mean... Like we were saying, with these databases, I would have found out one way or another. And and actually, on that subject, I have found quite a few half-siblings. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of them didn't know and s- still didn't know. And all of a sudden, they would match with me and they would reach out and be very confused. And, you know, delicately, I would try to explain it to them. But really, it's like, I wish your parents would explain it to them. And I've even had one sibling that didn't know that found out, you know, through I think it was ancestry or something matched with me. And then she got all the information she wanted from me. And then she went to have a discussion with her mom. And her mom, and this was a set of triplets here, so three babies. um, And her mom was told by the clinic that they used her egg. And so that opened a totally new can of worms. Because um, now the mom finding out, you know, that her kids are now 20, 26 years old, triplets, and they used the wrong egg or they they decided her egg wasn't viable and they thought maybe that nobody would be the wiser and use the different egg. Um, so, you know, I'm finding out the more siblings are coming out of the woodwork, the more um, stories there are, um, you know, about uh kind of where the clinic went wrong in some of these situations. So it's it's very complicated for sure. Wow. So how many siblings do you have now? I mean, that um, you've uncovered. Genetically, at this point, it's got to be 20 plus. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So, so you know, does the sperm donor have 100 kids out there? Um, we don't know. Um, most of the siblings I know of are on my mom's side right now. Um, simply because she has a lot of kids and all that. Um, but still, there's there's going to be quite a few questions answered in the next decade or so. Yeah. <laughs> but they just keep coming out of the woodwork. I just mashed with another one um, the other night. And I, uh, true story, and I'm worried again, because every time you get these kits around Christmas, you know what I mean? It's, um, it's more of a loving presence. And um, I had one sibling, an, a different sibling, who was who was from a set of twins, and he got his kit actually because his his um his brother bought it for him as a gift, and they were so so excited because they simply wanted to learn more about their family tree, and then all of a sudden they learn <laughs> and something totally different. So, um, we we'll see. <laughs> yeah, tread lightly, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, and do you? Want me to put your Instagram um, account on my on the episode? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, I don't use my Instagram as much, but um, I have a Facebook page uh, that I use. Um, well, why don't but you, yeah, whatever what, you, why want don't you say whatever you want people, if people want to find you, how should they find you? Um, and Facebook, named Sari Crawford. Uh, if you go to facebook.com slash Crawford. Great. And Sari is S-A-R-I, correct? Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, Sari, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I'm glad that the rain stopped and we finally were able to make this happen. I really appreciate it. Yes, Don. Thank you. That voice is the great Corey Goodrich singing Hey Dad. It's actually an MPE song. You can buy it on iTunes or you can stream it wherever you stream music. Have a great new year. This is Don Anderson, host of Missing Pieces. Thank you for listening.